0: The Daily Maverick
1: Show on CliffCentral.com Hello, hello, hello. You're listening to The Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. My name's Greg Nicholson. Thanks for joining us for another week. Normally you'll have Kingsley Kapoori introduce himself on the show, but this week, um, it's me. we're switching things up, but Kingsley is in studio. Kingsley. how are you doing?
2: I'm doing really good, man I like being on this side. This is pretty sweet.:
1: Should we share with the audience why I'm introducing the show, or are we just going to skip that?
2: So I was going to make a funny joke about it being opposite day. then I, I, I feel like that's a very, very what's the word immature joke, so let's not do the
1: joke. And we certainly it's not an immature show. We have a lot coming up.
2: <laughs> we do. Um thanks for everybody who's been tweeting in the run up to the show. We really appreciate your support. And it's really great to interact with everybody on Twitter at DM Shows a Day. Today we'll be talking a lot continental and global, actually. Um so in just in just reading the news, there's been so much going on across the continent. I mean, first is um a series of maritime disputes. Um so Disputes between different states about who owns what portion of the lake, or who owns what portion of the ocean outside those boundaries. And that's been really fascinating for me. Just something I never thought of that too much about. I think. And secondly,
1: um, seems like it's a conflict that's going to keep on coming up again and again as well.
2: It does. I do get a sense that it, this is this is something that's going to be on the increase. And we've got an, an expert we'll be chatting to about that a bit later. And then secondly, is around in Ethiopia something we covered a bit earlier in the year. I think in January it just continued protests around Addis Ababa and the and the region around that. And there's been reports by Human Rights Watch of over 500 people being killed um, as a result of those protests. So it's really something that we want to go back to and say, what's going on? It's been nine months since we last talked about it. It looks like still more people are being killed, more people are being displaced. And what's happening? I mean, there's always stories about Ethiopia being a great a great success story in terms of development. But 500 people being killed, that's, that's really something we need to pay attention to. And then lastly, the American debate. Um, the amazing uh debate that happened last night and was it no it was last it was this morning. It was this morning, it was this morning, our, morning time. our time. And yeah, we want to talk to uh, our daily Maverick journalist who covers the uh, sort of the, the American scene and political scene really well. So Jay Brooks Spector will be chatting to a bit later and, and hearing who won, who lost, what are the insults, what is the shade and all the and all the fun stuff. We should be able to talk uh uh maritime now. So we we have an expert on this on the line this is timothy walker who's who's a maritime security researcher at at the institute for security studies uh tim can you hear us I can hear you. Thanks, Kingsley. Thanks, Greg. Okay, wonderful. Um, so, uh, Tim, um, I just, my first question is just, it's just really about where all this is coming from. I mean, I'm following the news and, and, and firstly, I see a a dispute between, uh, Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. I see a dispute between Kenya and Somalia. And then there's, there's other disputes around lakes. We're hearing about, uh, Lake Malawi dispute between Tanzania and Malawi. And there seems to be an, and, uh, a rise in the number of countries That are disputing uh, territories that are, that, are, that are either on lakes or on oceans well, Does it feel like From your sort of research and, and your expertise that there's an increase Of these kind of disputes?
3: I think we're definitely seeing uh, a, An increased interest in the, the Kind of resources uh, Really um, an interest in resources That has brought interest For successful delimitation Of maritime boundaries um, I would, I would like to introduce a concept here for everyone to think about um, in terms of the end of sea blindness. We're only beginning to really realize in South Africa, all around Africa, about how dependent we are upon the maritime domain for trade, for transport, um, for resources. And uh, for the last, well, since the independence of, uh, of most countries, they've been very focused on issues on land. Uh, sea boundaries and their location has been a very low priority. Um, we have now the increased ability to access resources through better extraction techniques. Um, there's a, there's an interest in having a more secure energy um, energy security within a country. So countries have really kind of um, ended this kind of blindness of, of of how how much how many resources are available in their maritime domain, and uh, and, and started to pursue where those locations lie. Um, the the location of a maritime boundary is very important. Legally for the um, creation of blocks for oil companies, for instance, to explore whether there are resources there. So um, this has been a dormant issue for quite a while with the interest in maritime security from piracy, but also energy security, food security. We can see that uh, there 's a, a lot riding on the uh, decisions of, of, uh, of where these boundaries lie
2: um, in reading some of the research you 've put together, um, it sounds like um, the, the the literature and the studies and the study of, of how to to, to to resolve some of these disputes is really lacking. It sounds like uh, sort of post the colonial era on the continent, there was a lot of focus on on mm-hmm. on, on land boundaries and inland boundaries and, and how to settle disputes. And, and the processes for that and literature around that, but it sounds like the the maritime side of things, of of ocean borders and lake borders, that, that there is not a whole lot of literature around that. There's um, a
3: lot of uh, a lot of recent interest, but uh, but Africa has played a, a I say a good role, a crucial role in the creation of the uh, the law of the sea. It was um, contributed quite a lot. Uh, when I talk about the law of the sea, I'm referring to a a United Nations convention which uh, was uh, finally adopted in the 1980s but has only really come in force since the 1990s. Um, this gave states the rights to um, uh, sort, of, sort of divide up uh, the, the maritime domain into various zones. So in a very narrow coastal strip close to the, on the coast, 12 nautical miles, that's the territorial waters. And further and out you have a, an exclusive economic zone which uh, states have the rights for uh, for various uh, mineral and and various other resource extraction, and um, so the um, the distraction. Well, I wouldn't say the distractions. The the, mm. the, the 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 scale of the problems on land meant that uh, any time we would, for instance, turn to the sea to try and ascertain what is there and and how best to benefit from it, there was another problem uh, which. Uh, which uh, demands a lot of attention. For instance, uh, a a good example at at present is is that uh, I'm I'm here in Ethiopia, and um, the um, Intergovernmental Authority of Development, the uh, regional community, has recently come up with a maritime strategy, uh, looking to implement it. But um, but cases such as uh, the outbreak of conflict in South Sudan uh, mean that um, the momentum has to shift to tackle those kind of issues. So uh, maritime often gets marginalised uh, in, in the decision-making process, um, historically uh, and today as well. But but there is a there is a lot of momentum still. We can see tape being taken forward to uh, to resolve maritime conflict, but also in, enhance security as well.
2: I mean, yeah, I love that you brought up the, the competing sort of sides. There's one side that's about that sounds like it's a lot to do with, with discoveries of oil and gas and potential for profit. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, th- I think it sounds like that's a big part of the Kenya-Somalia case that's going on at the International Court of Justice. It sounds like that's a big part of the Côte d'Ivoire and Ghana side of things and with Lake Malawi mm-hmm. as well. Could you just explain the difference um, into some of the disputes that are more focused around oil and gas and perhaps some that are more focused around security and, and some of the differences around those? I think I
3: think they mostly um, their prominence is due to to the resources. Um, lake Malawi is a, a, an interesting uh, case to look at, where uh, according to an eighteen ninety treaty between, um, well, here we're talking uh, imperial Britain and imperial Germany, so um, a long time in the past, we're still being governed by these uh, these treaties. The uh, the borders of Lake Malawi for Tanzania, a German colony at the time, are, are supposed to stop at the at the lake shore. Now, that um, might seem not like common sense, but that's how the, uh, the that treaty was drawn up, because it gave Britain possession of Zanzibar. And in return, Germans received uh, some islands off Germany as well from Britain. And um, these, uh, these treaties have, have carried on until today, often. Uh, it's perhaps the exceptional case there. But, uh, but given the discovery of oil under Lake Malawi in the, in the mid-2000s, it suddenly became a very contentious issue, obviously, because... Uh, it would seem that uh, equitably for uh, the states surrounding Lake Malawi, that uh, an equal distribution of of the territory was was to be uh, determined. And that can also be seen in cases where there are oil resources which are not located simply within the boundaries of one country. And unfortunately, that's often the case. And that is also the case with maritime resources such as fish as well. You can't stop fish from from swimming between boundaries. You can stop uh, ships from sailing between boundaries, uh, and also exploration. But, uh, but resources tend to be uh, transnational. Um, this invites the opportunity, rather than the challenge of, of who owns it, to try and think of the future of ways of jointly benefiting, uh, joint development, uh, cooperation. This is envisioned in, in African Union documents looking at development for the future regional documents and national plans as well I often talk of integration in the future who we're talking 50, 50 or so years into the future but that's the kind of goal we want to look at uh, kind of a, a joint um, more sharing approach rather than simple who owns what um the icj case at the moment to determine where the maritime boundary lies in 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 one part is a is a, is a necessary thing it is necessary to determine where these boundaries lie. But uh, but we can also begin to talk about a, a kind of transcending in that regard. Um, it's, a, it's quite
2: an exciting
3: uh, possibility. I think uh, we'll see more in the future.
2: I mean, Tim, I like that you've brought up the issue of resolution. Um, I want to just hear about some of the bodies in reading some of the cases. It sounds quite confusing. I mean, some countries have gone to the International Court of Justice. Um, some are just dealing with it via just their own diplomatic channels. And there seem to be a few uh, sort of other treaties and bodies and paperwork around this. So some, some UN literature, mm-hmm. UN bodies. Could you just explain about resolution? What are, the, what, what are the different channels that countries are going to to resolve these disputes? Um, and and what, what do you see as the way forward on some of the issues we're seeing right now? Certainly. There's, there's a lot of mechanisms
3: which states can pursue um, to find resolution. Um, the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea the uh, major reference point for everything we discuss um, doesn't refer to inland lakes here. That's a, a, another issue for the future as well, where inland waters are now being considered part of the uh, the maritime domain. But, but uh, this is not applicable here. But there are tribunals, um, adjudication mechanisms, arbitration mechanisms, because ideally it would be a subject where states bilaterally, just between here, for instance, Kenya and Somalia, have agreed that a or have asked a boundary commission for instance to determine where a boundary lies and agree to that and uh, construct a, a treaty on on that basis if uh, existing treaties are seen to be unfair and as I say many of them are, um, dating from uh, colonial times when there was no interest in the uh, in the future or an independent uh, state in that regard as well
2: um, there could be possible uh, sorry, yeah? I'm sorry, um, I just wanted to also just throw another thing into the mix, is this uh, this uh, 2050 Africa's Integrated Maritime Strategy. Um, it mm. sounds like a really large, sort of overarching, sort of piece of work. Could you talk a bit about how that how that feeds into all this? Sure.
3: Okay. Um, yeah. Just to just to say about the uh, the arbitration mechanisms. Uh, the, the the Convention of the Law of the Sea includes many mechanisms states can pursue. The ICJ is one of them. There are um, the possibilities of requesting. Um, a neutral party to uh, mediate a dispute, the icj is an interesting case because it 's solely between states um, it 's the united nations body um, just just recently had its seventieth anniversary and it's a it 's a binding decision uh, whoever if the icj determines for instance that the boundary needs to be redrawn uh, states will commit to that process if kenya 's case is um, is rejected. That does not mean that Somalia has sovereignty over the area under under dispute. And if Kenya's um, case for the uh, for the for this issue to be dismissed is is taken forward, then then a Somalia will have to abide by that. It's a uh, it's quite like I say a binding process. So it's a uh, the overlapping sometimes, but the the sheer number of um, possible ways in which states can resolve these maritime boundary disputes is supposed to be exhausted first before pursuing this this very final and binding. Um, uh, mechanism. Um it's 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 still up for question whether Somalia and Kenya truly did exhaust all possible ways of resolving the boundary dispute. Ken, Kenya feels that it uh has not and there were other means of doing it. Somalia feels I think that uh, that the case could never be properly resolved anymore. So it had to be determined by this body. Um, just moving on to to aims, a very comprehensive strategy not just focusing on security problems such as piracy or terrorism, but uh, but looking broader at um, what kind of Africa we want to have in 2050. We want to have uh, fishing um, fish stocks uh, which aren't exhausted. For instance, one of the big questions is how will we feed ourselves if illegal fishing continues? Uh, we'll have to have food imports. We'll have to subsidize food production in the future. We just don't have the money. Um, it ideally would like to see the creation of uh, what's called the blue economy, um, maritime transport, maritime trade, maritime industries contributing to, uh, to a national development, a national uh, uh, national wealth, uh, which would then effectively pay for itself. Um, people may have come across Operation PAKISA in South Africa, um, a drive from the government to boost uh, maritime industries in that regard. Boundary definitions, um, ba- boundary delimitations are included under the um, AIMS 2050 um like i say it does have some uh, gaps in terms of inland waters those will have to be subject to new treaties between the countries if they feel that they're unfair but also for instance um tribunals um in the southern african development community there was a uh, tribunal which could have been uh the source for uh a a solution to malawi and tanzania's uh uh, um dispute but uh that tribunal was uh weakened and it's finally been dismissed so um I say, unfortunately, we have to pursue an international course in that regard. But AIMS 2050 is really uh, the production of African solutions, uh, not just uh, international solutions.
2: I mean, it sounds really comprehensive and really the way to go. Um, Tim, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Uh, thanks for making time to chat to us and looking forward to having you in studio when you're back in the country. Thanks very much. Looking forward to it, too. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank um, you. And just reading this, I was, I mean, Greg, just chatting to you over the, the weekend, I remember just getting lost in some of the the cases and just being like, you know, there's coordinates offshore and it's 14 nautical miles and 200 nautical miles. And even in reading the journalism about it, to be honest, I could get a sense that even the journalists, some of the journalists writing about it didn't have the greatest grasp of of what they were writing about. And to me, I think that was just a symptom showing that, it's it's just something that's been ignored in terms of discussions around borders and and uh, especially on the continent. So I think it's it's really interesting that we've got experts like Tim doing the research and trying to figure out what are we going to do.
1: Yeah, I know we're talking about it on the way here. Yeah. Looking at trying to understand some of these concepts yeah. isn't the easiest thing. So I think that's why we want to Tim on just to sort of explain a few of these things. And the case a few people might know is about the dispute that um, was mentioned sort of throughout the conversation between Kenya and Somalia um, about the various. Um, where the sort of land borders end and the waters, um, the divisions there begin. And I think looking at some of the the issues of oil exploration in that region, it's going to be a fascinating one to continue to watch.
2: Absolutely. I mean, oil, oil is always a game changer, as we, as we know from watching global geopolitics for the first how many years? <laughs> oil and natural gas is a game changer. But now to change uh, sort of direction somewhat, to also in the same region of East Africa, to talk a bit about Ethiopia. Um, uh, As we covered earlier in the year As of November last year There there was a plan uh, by the Ethiopian government To extend uh, the city of Addis Ababa Into the surrounding area around that Um, And that area was farmland That's primarily occupied by a particular tribe Called the Oromo um, and that really started a wave of protests and a lot of back and forth in the country that resulted in in, in displacement, that resulted in death, and, and really horrific scenes that we've seen from, from that country. Um, so just to get a more sort of detailed picture on this, um, we'll be speaking to Felix Horn, uh, who's the senior researcher on the Horn of Africa uh, at Human Rights Watch. Uh, Felix, can you hear us?
4: I can hear you, yes. Okay, wonderful.
2: So Felix, I mean, you... you you authored a, a study uh, or part of authoring a study earlier this year and interviewed hundreds of people across Oromia about about their experience and their, and their perspective on what's going on. Um, I'd love if you could just give us some accounts of some of the feedback you got from the in-depth study and research and interviews that you conducted. What are some of the feedback that you heard from the people?
4: Yeah, sure. I mean, the, it was quite incredible to me that the, the, the type of stories that we heard from you know, the 150 or so uh, Romos that we interviewed for that report were, were quite similar. Uh, you know, protests that were predominantly peaceful were met with lethal force by security forces, the use of live ammunition, uh, mass arrests. Many of those we spoke to described uh, torture in detention. Uh, and this happened in hundreds of locations across Oromia. And more recently, sort of after the report, you know, the protests have also spread to the Amhara region in the north. Uh, so we believe that over 500 people have been killed by security forces. Tens of thousands were detained, uh, many of whom are still in detention. Uh, and it's really put the country on, in, a, in a very dangerous uh, position where there's, there's an incredible amount of tension. And uh, it's incredibly difficult to see a way forward without the government making major, major concessions
2: i mean uh, when the more we talk about this i just think back to this trade off has been discussed a lot in regards to ethiopia and regards to rwanda about this 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 supposed uh supposed trade off between economic development and and some of the human rights and, and and of the of the people in those countries do you is that a discussion that's happening when you when you when you speak to people on the ground are they do they perceive it as this perhaps we have to sacrifice on some things for the, for, the greater of, for the greater Ethiopia and the greater economic agenda? Or is it simply a perception that their government is really just turning on them?
4: Well, I think it's, I mean, it's certainly a debate that's happening outside of Ethiopia, amongst Ethiopians and those that work on Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of space inside the country for that sort of debate. And it's something over the last... Uh, what five six years in particular, where anyone questions those those economic successes, ends up being threatened, harassed, uh, arrested by by security forces. So there's no space to kind of have a dialogue about yeah this this, this trade off as as you put it. I think one thing that's very clear from the Oromo protests is that while Ethiopia continually talks about its economic successes, you know, Western nations also talk about Ethiopia's economic successes. That um, success isn't necessarily being felt by the people on the ground. So, Romos were constantly. Some of the messaging in the protest was constantly around, you know, the, the yeah, the displacement from their land for different types of, of uh, development activities that the government is promoting internationally as a, as a success story. Um, you know, in Amhara region, it's more about how the the, the who are the the, sort of the dominant ethnic group in the government. Um, are receiving sort of proportional or disproportional, sorry, benefits from the economic growth, from the political power that's happening in the country. So although there might be some economic growth, it's very uneven in its distribution. And as the population rapidly increases in Ethiopia, I mean, that's really causing some some big problems.
1: Now, Felix, you mentioned some of the... That there are protests both in the Oromo region and we know, you know, quite well um the documented documented sort of subjugation of the Oromo people um over many years. But then there also seem to be these protests that have spread to the Amhara sort of regions. Is there any sort of growing solidarity between these between these different groups in, in, in sort of taking up these causes or, or are they over different issues?
4: They're over slightly different issues, but I mean there's certainly some overlap. Um, and as I mentioned, that's sort of the dominance of the of, of, of the TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, in the government and in the the economic and political affairs of the country. I think what we what we've seen is that there's not a lot of um, opportunities in Ethiopia for for groups from different parts of the country to, to to communicate to show solidarity with each other. Social media has provided a bit of an opportunity for that to happen, but you know the institutions. Um, you know, where where those common issues can be discussed have been decimated over the last decade. Independent media doesn't really sort of cover or doesn't really exist, um, you know, minus a couple of publications. So it's difficult for for those two groups to be discussing openly about their their common interests. Having said that, there are a lot of Amharas that live in the Aromia region that in the last couple of months have started to come out to protest, to show solidarity Mm -hmm. with their Aromal neighbours. And similarly, in the Amhara region, Oromos that are living there have come out to show solidarity. So, you know, November, December, January in Oromia, it was predominantly ethnic Oromos coming out onto the streets. Now in Oromia, it's 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 much more um, broad in terms of the ethnic makeup.
1: Is that what is that potentially what's necessary to really push this issue forward? Is it is it that sort of broader solidarity with the Aroma people?
4: I, th- I mean I think potentially i i uh it's been very clear to me that that during the months of the of the Roma protests that it very much was a was and there wasn't i mean, i wasn't seeing a lot of evidence of solidarity from other uh ethnic groups in other parts of the country or if they were sort of wanting to show solidarity they did it very very quietly i think the the protest spreading to the Amhara region and some of the solidarity that I spoke about jazz yeah, a bit of a a game changer in Ethiopia. Um, I mean, that was always the concern. If protests started in one region, they spread to others very quickly. It could become unmanageable for the government. Uh, And, you know, potentially we're just we're just on the edge of that. Um, You know, it's it's perhaps possible for the government to contain the protests in Aromia, although I think there's a big question about that. But to to contain the protests across multiple regions, it's very difficult to see how that's going to Happen in the long term without, as I said earlier, major concessions being made by the government.
1: What impact do some of these prominent Ethiopians, who seem to be either making statements or or their own sort of um, symbolic protests? So I'm talking here about um, Faisa Lilesa, um, the the Ethiopian Oromo ra- uh, marathon runner who took silver at the Rio Olympics, and I think there was a pop star who uh, in the last couple of days fled Ethiopia over her issues of harassment and, um, saying he'd like to see regime change. Do these, um, sort of celebrity or, or, or well, well known type, um, Ethiopians speaking out or, or engaging in symbols of protest, do they have any influence?
4: Yeah, they have a huge amount of influence. I mean, because a lot of, um, you know, the politicians or, or those well-known personalities who would normally speak out, have been arrested, have been detained or have just been sort of silenced. There's not a lot of kind of the charismatic figure that, that can lead the protesters. And certainly runners, um, artists are, are, are one sort of group of society that are that are still able to kind of find a little bit of space to to speak out. I think Faisa's gesture has really um, emboldened a, a lot of protesters that I've spoken to. Um, and, you know, Fea says an ethnic Oromo, but the runners really sort of bridged that ethnic divide. I mean, he is widely respected across the country. And, uh, I mean, that gesture, which, you know, originally was a gesture, you know, solely for this Oromo protest, um, that gesture really has um, caused a lot of, uh, um, yeah, motivation and, uh and, and support uh, across the, the country. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think that they've had a massive influence. I think it will probably continue to have a massive influence as, as more runners make that gesture, which, which seems to be happening, um, in various races around the world.
2: Okay. Uh, Felix, my final question is around your reading of the momentum around just looking at the local, uh, the local momentum in terms of other, other protests in other regions, the celebrity endorsements, if you can call them that, that you've, we've just mm-hmm. discussed and the international community. Uh, and how they treat the, the, the Ethiopia uh, uh, success story versus the issues and the crackdowns we're seeing locally. Um, when, you, when you look at all this, do you see continued protesting? Do you see people continue to be killed and continuing to disappear? Do you think perhaps the, the, the tide might turn locally and internally and perhaps may become more confrontational with the, with the individuals? Do you think the international community may play a role? Where do you see all this going?
4: Yeah, I mean, well, it's been very clear that the government's uh, approach hasn't changed since day one. I mean, they they treat this largely as a military operation, you know, movement to be crushed. And so the military is out using lethal force. And that hasn't changed at all. And and I think every time, you know, a protester would be shot, that just guaranteed that there would be future protests. And, you know, as I talked to the young protesters... They're like, yeah, we went out, we protested, we thought that would be it, but my friend X got shot and yeah. now I'm, you know, I'm going to go out next week. And so it's hard to see, mm-hmm. well, if the government continues to adopt that approach, that things are going to change at all. Um, so, yeah, I think there probably will be more more killing. I think protesters that were quite committed to nonviolence are talking more and more about abandoning that approach because it hasn't worked. It's just led to to more killings and arrests of their of their colleagues. I mean, that's incredibly worrying for the future of the country. And the, and the international community needs to do more. I mean, they're so afraid to criticize, you know, their trusted ally in East Africa. They're so afraid to push them. Um, and now Ethiopia is really on that precipice and they need to do much, much more, um, you know, before we get to a situation where we look back and we're like, how, how did this happen? Um, you know, the, the warning signs are there. So it's time to take strong action now.
2: Okay. Felix, thank you so much for this and please keep up the excellent work. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. This is CliffCentral.com. Afternoon. If you're just joining us, we're just jumping into the second portion of the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Loving the awesome interaction on AdDM Shows today. day. Eh? Um, just before the break, we were talking about Ethiopia and, and and the protests we've seen there. More than 500 people killed. Um, and, 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 a lot of protests in the regions around Addis Ababa and other parts of the country. And, and a lot of, a lot of high profile people we've seen a pop sign. We saw, uh, Greg, you mentioned the Olympic athlete who, after doing really well at the Olympics, put up his hands and a cross in a protest sign as part of the Oromo people. So it's really something that's, that's, that's been gaining momentum. Um, something really fascinating in the coverage of this is, is an article that, that came out of the World Policy Journal. And it, and it talks about the, what they call ethiopia's original sin and it's around a battle that happened over 100 years ago and there's this this fascinating depiction of that as a, as a real moment in how the oromo the oromo tribe in ethiopia is is regarded today is discarded today and and we wanted to just speak to the authors of that so on the line we have uh muhammad ademo who's the founder and editor-in-chief of Opride.com, and is, and is quite prominent in his writing and discussions around ethiopia and the oromo muhammad can you hear us
5: Yes, thank you for having me. Okay, wonderful.
2: Uh, Mohammed. I mean, just just to take us back, I mean, in reading your article, it says this was the 120th anniversary of the Battle of Adwa. Could you tell us a bit what was the Battle of Adwa?
5: The Battle of Adwa was fought uh, when Italians uh, invaded Ethiopia in 1890s. And uh, it was a very pivotal battle in, in that. Uh, a def- Ethiopia's defeat at that battle would have changed the story that Ethiopia is one of the only few African countries that remained uncolonized. Uh, were, there was a brief uh, Italian occupation in the 1930s, but Ethiopia largely avoided uh, colonization in part because of that uh, monumental battle in Adwa, which is in the uh, northern part of Ethiopia.
2: I mean, I've, I like that you mentioned this idea that Ethiopia was never colonized. I mean, that one line is something that's, you know, that's known across the continent and perhaps across the world. This this pride around around Ethiopians being independent and always being self determining. Um, but as you as you talk around uh, in your article and write, you you mentioned this this one figure, Emperor Menelik, and and how pivotal he was in the battle. Could you speak about his role and how he's regarded in some parts of modern Ethiopia?
5: Yes, uh, just like the, uh, the narrative that Ethiopia was never colonized, this great symbol, symbol of black independence, black strength, uh, the Africans who defeated, uh, uh Italians with his spears and, their horse. There is also this other figure, uh, who was the, le- the sort of emperor, the builder of Ethiopia, Menelik II, uh, who is regarded as, uh, you know, a hero, a national figure, a unifier by certain Ethiopians. But uh, if you look uh, broadly at the Ethiopian history, uh, there are groups that are not in power at the time and who were actually colonized by Menelik. Uh, In the south, the Oromo, the the Walaitas, the Sidamas, the Ogadenis, the Gambellas, the Kambatas, who were forcefully incorporated into the Ethiopian empire. So what was happening uh, right around the Berlin Conference when the Europeans were dividing up the continent of Africa, Menelik was also on his own uh, colonial mission, where starting from the uh, north, he was expanding south to what is today known as Ethiopia and even parts of Somalia forceful killing and literally wiping out uh, the people on his way who put up a strong resistance, particularly the Oromo. Uh, so for, for, for the people in the south of Ethiopia, the Oromo are the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia, Menelik is very much a genocider. He was an emperor uh, in the mold of, uh, you know, the King Leopold uh, who colonized Congo. Congo, in in, in the Belgian Congo, as it was called then. So there is this narrative of uh, a king who, on the one hand, is seen as uh, a national figure, the founder of Ethiopia, if you will, and there's a statue of him in the center of Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. He's celebrated as a hero. There are songs for him uh, in the Ethiopian uh, uh, pop culture. But on the other side, there are there are Oromos who feel, and others who feel great revulsion just by the mention of his name, because there are instances where many forces, uh, for example, in, in Oromia, in an area called Arsi, where they called uh, a meeting of people uh, at a place called Anole uh, after uh, massive defeat and in, in a lot of resistance from the locals. They called the meeting to make peace, and when people showed up for the meeting, they just started cutting off breasts from uh, women and uh, genitals from men. And uh, You know, when you mention the name Menelik uh, in some circles of Ethiopia, it it brings back that dark history Mm -hmm. uh, of his incursion, his invasion. Uh, So there's this controversial figure, which I think, as we wrote in the article, Uh, plays a huge role in the sort of ethnic divisions, ethnic divides in the country today in the ways that uh, people see themselves. For example, when you talk about Ethiopia in Prince Menelik, I and a lot of Oromos don't necessarily connect with that narrative. (laughs) We don't feel Ethiopian enough because this is a colonizer. For example, if you go to Congo today and uh, try to tell people uh, in, in the old Belgian Congo to fill uh, Belgians. You know, they, they have, a, you know, a different sentiment. Uh, so uh, Menelik is a very controversial figure, and uh, a part of it is the way the Ethiopian story is written, uh, because in the Battle of Adwa, the Oromos and other people who Menelik incorporated by force into his empire played a huge role in defeating the Italians. But their role has never been acknowledged because they were his subjects, Mm -hmm. and uh, you don't acknowledge the role of the subjects, and you just uh, take all the credit for yourself. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Ethiopia is not at a place yet uh, where this history can be reconciled and uh, acknowledged the the contribution of the uh, Menelikist subjects and and the, the rest of the people who live in what is today Ethiopia. Their contribution has not been given the place it deserves.
2: Um, Mohammed, I mean, I think my final question on this is just about centering on this one line in the article you wrote that's, that I find so powerful. And you say, those left out of history are more easily disregarded in the present. Could you just speak to that a bit?
5: Yes, absolutely. Look, when you have a history of a country that is written in a way that they're not included, they will remain unincluded. Uh, and uh, they, they will remain left out in the uh, when you hear, you know, let's, let's just go back a little bit and talk about uh, Ethiopia. When people think of Ethiopia, a land of 3,000 years of history uh, that was never colonized, a country that has one uh, a unique calendar, a, a country that has a unique alphabet. When people talk about these things, we're always talking about uh, the Amharas, the dominant class whom Menelik was a part of. And they were... Uh, empire builders that forged the boundaries of uh, Abyssinia, which is the former name for Ethiopia, you don't hear anything about the Oromos, who are, you know, about half of the country's population. You don't hear enough about the other ethnic groups who paid dearly to uh, forestall Italy's invasion. So they were left out of history. When the Ethiopian history was written, they are still left out because you don't, this is a truly diverse nation, a truly rainbow nation, as South Africans might say. But what you hear, uh, in Ethiopian, uh, historiography, in Ethiopian pop culture, and what is known uh, about Ethiopia, the food, the culture, the dresses, uh, everything about Ethiopia is, is still until today, uh, largely about one group that is the dominant group that uh, uh, was part of uh, the movement to build the country, and also they wrote their own his- history. And uh, since the people uh, who were menelik subjects and subjects of Minilik successors up until Haile Selassie, their contribution, their presence was never felt. And there are instances where, you know, for example, the Oromo language was banned from official uh, use uh, until 1990s, and only in 1990s that the Oromo children in Ethiopia, Mm -hmm. I told you earlier, half of the country started learning in their language. And and this is a complete erasure, not only of the people from history, but their identity, their language. Uh, Now we are uh, trying to bring some of that back and trying to add this perspective so that not just the international community, even Africans themselves don't understand this. They don't have a very clear picture of uh, Ethiopia, and uh, we are hoping to change that.
2: Okay, Mohammed, thank you so much. Um, for those listening in, as I mentioned, the article is called Ethiopia's Original Sin, and it's a big thank you to World Policy Journal. Uh, for, for publishing okay. that and we'll add a link of that to the show. Uh, so it's a big thank you to Mohammed Ademo and Hassan Hussein, who's his co author. Um, I thought that segment was just quite important, uh, not only because of Ethiopia is such a, you know, sort of important country in the region, but also, in thinking back to South Africa and how we also grapple with our history here, and 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 in recent conversations about the about Codessa conversations and, and the role of Nelson Mandela and how we continue to grapple with history, so this link of how we understand our past and how that helps us sort of frame our present and our future, I think is really is really interesting. Now turning to our final segment, and we'll be just chatting to uh, uh, J. Brook Spectre in a second. Uh, Greg, I'm um, just quickly around the American president elections. I mean, I'm really curious. The more I watch this election, I wonder if, if going into a debate, if do you think voters actually go in and use what they see to make decisions, or or do you think it's sometimes just more of a spectacle and entertainment, and just people want to see, you know, who insults who and and if there's any comedy and humor that comes out of it.
1: I think I think these sort of debates and ongoing discussions mm-hmm. in election campaigns. Yeah. I think often influence um undecided voters and swinging voters that I think is the key thing okay there are there are a lot of others who I think just have their key key- key parties key constituents and they 'll vote the same every time. but I think these debates are essential for for those swing uh swing voters.
2: I hear you. And now to speak to, uh, Jay Brooks Spector, who's on the line, that's Daily Mavic journalist. Um, um, Brooks, I mean, Gre- Greg and I have been following this. Greg did some reading on this this morning. So mm. we just wanted to chat to you about your perspective, Greg.
1: Yeah, Brooks, it seemed, it seemed sort of what, what, from what we've heard of the debate. Um, I'm not sure how early you got up to watch it, but we, I think Kingsley and I were both, you know, snugly in bed. But from what it seems is it seems that Trump was very self-defensive when he was, he was sort of, Put under pressure, while Hillary Clinton seemed a bit more energized, a bit more well-hearsed and and um, confident. What were your key takeaways from this debate?
0: Well, actually, I did get up to watch it. I, I'm I, sorry, I, I watched. I, well, so <laughs> <laughs> I. watched it all the way through. Took two cups of coffee to get to the end of it. Then the phone call started, and so I've been up ever since, oh. uh, which is which is exciting. Um, but. If you if you want to graph it out for the first 25, 30 minutes where the issues were uh, economic growth and growing an economy, um, there was a debate there that actually had an interesting texture to it. On the one side, the, the Trumpian notion was that you cut taxes so that rich people or rich organizations will invest their money uh, in business. Uh, in growing new business. Now, I mean, it's a debatable notion, and uh, historical evidence doesn't always show that this has worked. Um, The the Clinton argument in its place was that the real way to deal with this is to spend some serious resources on building or rebuilding infrastructure and a kind of American-style, loose and flexible industrial policy policy. in new technologies, new industries uh, as she said, make the make the u s the the center of the world 's solar panel solar energy industry and you can argue both sides of this, but at least it was a, it was an argument now uh, Trump got himself a little tangled up right from the get go on this by an, by announcing he was really angry with the Ford Motor Company for moving all of its production of small cars to Mexico, proving that the companies are are departing the country and and the country is losing jobs. And the only problem, of course, is that Ford says, that's not what's happening. In fact, we're going to be building higher value, more expensive vehicles in the plant that we have just evacuated Mm for making these small, less expensive vehicles. Um, But once we got past that half hour uh, and we got into all of the other areas, uh, Donald Trump started to run out of gas. And he got increasingly less and less focused. Um, It was as if he had discovered the limits of just winging it. Mm. And there are some things where you really do have to study and pay attention and prepare and prep and train. And um, he chided uh, Hillary Clinton for not being actively out on the campaign trail the last couple of days you're preparing for this debate. And she right back at him said, yes, of course I'm preparing for this debate. You also prepare for becoming president, you know, Uh, you know, I thought that was pretty good. Uh, You know, it's sort of like, you know, she didn't go walk across the stage and smack him, but uh, you could see it on his face because they kept showing uh, the two people at the same time in a split screen. So you always had the, uh, whoever was speaking and the response and reaction visually in front of you the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, He got caught out on, among other things, his taxes and his tax returns. He's insistent he's not going to release them until the, the Internal Revenue Service, the American Tax Authority, finishes their audit of it, uh, and the, the tax authorities have said, you can release them anytime; it doesn't matter. And she said to him, Ah, well, then, there are several possibilities here. Maybe you don't pay any taxes uh, through various deductions, and we'll get to see how much or how little you give to charitable foundations and philanthropies and we'll get to We'll get a better sense of all the money you probably owe to shady businessmen and banks in other countries parentheses we're talking here about the Russian oligarchs apparently um, and he blustered a bit and, you know, huffed and puffed, and um, he was never quite able to say, I do pay taxes, and this is how much I pay, because he's made it a point that he's not going to release any of this data. Um, so mm-hmm. the end result, I think, I think is that um, she won by a significant going-away margin on the basis of that last hour. It was a whole 90 minutes, two of them standing up, uh, no breaks. The um, CNN uh, ha- was running some focus groups of people who are, and goes back to your original commentary before I joined, uh, of undecided voters in a battleground state of Florida. And they had picked them because they were split between nominally Republican, nominally Democratic, and nominally independent voters who had not made up their mind as to what they were going to do. And a majority of them after the debate was over, basically said, well, we're starting to shade towards Hillary Clinton as a result of this. Factor that in with the other part of the circumstances. There are several more debates to come. But between now and the actual election day, in fact, starting on the 23rd, in many states across the country, many citizens will vote by advanced ballots. They're not going to wait till November 8th. So they will have made up their mind on the basis of what they have heard so far and what they have read without necessarily hearing the next debate and the debate after it, as well as the vice presidential debate. And if her impact has been as strongly positive as some people think it may have been, that could have an effect on the way those people vote in advance of Election Day as well. We don't know that, and we're not going to know it, obviously, until, until they count those ballots, but you'll get the first inklings of it in a couple days when the newest polling comes out that will, indic- that will be working from interviews with people who had already watched the debate.
1: Um, sorry, sorry, Brooks. Um, it seems that this this uh, defeat for Trump has um, sort of culminated after a long time of obviously people calling out his misleading statements, his lies, um, his misogyny. Yes, and, and and all sorts of other things. Yeah, and sure. and obviously, I think there might be a lot of um, onlookers who might want to say this is you know the sort of beginning of the the real end for Trump's campaign. But is it too early to to say that?
0: Well, it is uh, because. Uh, remember, there are there, regardless of the misogyny, regardless of the uh, of the errors, in fact, omission and commission, and then the outright lies that are deliberately done. Um, there are there is still a residue of people. What what shall we say? Forty percent of the electorate who thinks he is the answer, regardless of anything else, <clears throat> they're not going to change their minds, even if he stumbles in debate number two. They're going to stay with it. What they're going to do is blame the media for portraying their hero in a bad light. But it's going to, if all those things happen, it's going to shift the dynamic and the momentum away from him. Over the last week or two, um, he had successfully claimed something of the momentum, narrowing the gap between the two candidates, uh, criticizing her on in a continuing basis on her email problem, uh, as well as the fact that, uh, she went off the uh, radar for a bit because of the walking pneumonia she came down with. And it took them days to announce that that's what it was. Um, but momentum is a funny thing. I mean, it doesn't just go by itself. Uh, you have to keep adding energy to keep it moving. And this debate and, uh, the Trump campaign's react the defensive reaction afterwards may have taken some steam out of that particular growth of uh, momentum. We'll have to, you know, we're, we're not going to know today. It'll be, where are we here, Tuesday? By Thursday or Friday, you know, the first polling that will have taken place uh, from the day of the debate onward may become available. And that will matter a lot.
2: Okay. we'll make sure to look out for those polls and, of course, keep coming to you as the election continues. Thanks
1: so much, Brooks. Just before we finish, Kingsley, Thank you, Brooks. Just before we finish, I was while I thought it's a funny little note that I was I was reading about the the um debate last night on the U.S. political website Politico. Yeah. And the ads there actually there's ads from Trump's campaign to click that Trump won the debate. Okay. That there's pop-ups on articles saying Hillary won the debate, so it's <laughs> hilarious. I just thought.
2: That's that's. I mean, it's amazing. Also, just seeing the fact checks of of Trump's speeches, and it's just. Claim lie, claim, lie, claim, misleading, claim, misleading. So it's amazing how a campaign can be built on lies and filth, some might say. Thanks everybody for tuning in and of course for all the interaction on at DM Shows today. Day. We love the feedback. We'll see you next week, as usual, one to two PM, same time, same place. This is CliffCentral.com. Cliff